Good morning. I know there's, uh, there's usually a little bit of consternation when you have somebody new in the pulpit. Uh, so I just want to put you all at ease. I'm going to try to stay as close to Matt's preaching style as possible. So if you would all turn in your copies of Lord of the Rings to the first chapter, a long-expected party. Uh, so uh, we, today we're going to be reading out of Genesis 15. Uh, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, as we approach your word with fear and trembling, uh, may it find good soil in our hearts. May it grow fruit to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to, to start things off, we'll, they'll give this chapter a little bit of context. And if you're following along your, your bulletins, my first point is going to be called the inconsistent, because... If we take a look at Abram in the last three chapters, first and foremost, we don't know much about Abram before God calls him. All we know is that God called him. He was out in the era of the Chaldeans. God said, you, come here. And that's it. There was nothing that Abram had done. God said, no, you're coming with me. And Abram said, okay. So immediately after this, Abram goes to Egypt with his wife and he says to Sarai, you are too pretty for them to let me live. So I'm just going to say that you're my sister. 
And this causes a whole load of consternation where suddenly there's a bunch of plagues on the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh's just like, okay, why did you lie to me? Get out. Here's a bunch of loot on your way out, which this might sound a touch familiar, but we'll, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. And then because he got sent out of Egypt, he's now back into Canaan where there's currently a famine going on. And uh, he and his uh, nephew Lot, had, they don't have enough to stay together. There's not, there's not enough room. There's not enough food to go around. So Abram and Lot split ways. Lot goes over near Sodom and Gomorrah, which, you know, a few chapters later, bad things happen. He's with all of these people, and Sodom and Gomorrah has some enemies. They have rivals. They come in, and they loot and capture a bunch of Lot's people and Lot himself. Abram has to go in and save him, all because Abram just decided that he was scared of Pharaoh. All this ends up happening. So Abram is just a little bit inconsistent. And throughout the, the, the three chapters preceding this, God has been so consistent. And in chapter 12, he calls Abram and says, hey, you're mine. Come with me. I'm going to bless you. In chapter 13, he tells him about the land he's going to possess. And he's, he's, this, that's, this is my promise to you, Abram. And in chapter 14, he's also blessed by the priest Melchizedek. He's given a blessing. So God has been pretty consistent, pretty open with how, what's going to happen with Abram, that he's on his side. And so we come to chapter 15, and again, God is being consistent. God is saying, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be great, which that's just, that's a, that's a great line. Abram, I am going to do the work. You are going to be rewarded. Your reward will be great. I am your shield. I have your back. I'm going to cover you. And then the very next words out of Abram's mouth, and this isn't a vision. I don't know about you, but if I'm pulled into a vision with the Lord God Almighty, the first words out of my my mouth are not going to be, God, I don't have any kids. And there's like a little bit of an accusation there of well, when are you going to give me kids? I don't like after all of this stuff that God has already done for Abram. He's already subtly accusing God. So after the the the, the chapter starts with after these things, like I love that because it emphasizes that stuff has already happened with Abram. After these things, God is reiterating His covenant with Abram. And the first thing out of Abram's mouth is, I don't have an heir. And my butler, my butler's going to have to inherit, thanks God. This, that's, that's what it's looking like to me right now. I don't know how this is going to happen. And so God, again, shows amazing patience with Abram. And he says, no, your son will be your heir. You will have your own son. You will have your own offspring. And... To emphasize this, God takes Abram outside, and there's not only there there is a there's a perspective shift here. Not only in the physical, because Abram is looking around him, he's looking at his camp. He doesn't see any little Abrams and Sarai's running around. He just he just sees God. I am I'm I'm eighty years old, you know, eighty plus at this point. I am basically dead. What are you going to do? And so God's like, okay, Abram, step outside. Now look at the sky. 
And so there's there's a shift from the 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 world around him to the promises above. And he's God says, "Look at the stars. This is my promise to you. This is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you so many descendants you're not going to be able to count them." And Paul kind of picks up on this a little bit in uh, Romans 4:17-18. It says, "As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead. Again, Abram's like 80 plus years old. That's not prime fathering age. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, as in Abram, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And so verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram was bringing nothing to the table. All he had was the promises of God. He believed them, and that, that covered it. That was it. That was his righteousness. That was counted to him. God was imputing that righteousness to him. And in that, we see the beginning of the covenant, the covenant portion of this. Uh, if, you, if you're doing the points again, uh, this one is called inconceivable. And so this is, this is where God begins to lay things out for Abram in a way he's going to understand. So he, Abram is believing these promises. He is saying... You know, I don't understand how this is going to happen. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I believe you, God. Okay, well, let's let's go ahead and do this. Let's do this. And John Calvin talks about this. Uh, for he who has God for his inheritance, and this is what this is what Abram's realizing. God, you are my inheritance. You are my hope. You this this is all I have. All I have is you. He who has God for his inheritance does not exult in fading joy, but as one who as, as but as one already elevated towards heaven enjoys the solid happiness of eternal life. Abraham is saying, "Okay, that he's he's believing God, and that that in and of itself, he's you are going to do as you say." And we as Christians, when we believe the same way, the the happiness of eternal life is already as solid as if we were already there. So even as we live and breathe and work in this world in front of us, we already have that promise, that, that security in what God has done for us. And we can live out our lives here with that same joy as if we were already there because it's already done. And this is the point that God is trying to get across to Abram. It's already done. So let me let me let me put this in a way you're going to understand, because again, God immediately says in verse seven, "I am the God. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess." He's like, "Look, this is the purpose I brought you out for." And again, verse eight, Abram is he believes, but he's still not quite grasping it because almost the the exact next thing he says. 
how am I to know that I shall possess it? How will I know? Like, the, Abram is still looking inward at this point. He's still saying, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, God. Because, again, I don't have any. He's still kind of thinking about how he doesn't have kids, and he's not sure how this is all going to work out. And so, finally, God begins the process of the covenant. Now, this is the uh, what's called a, a in this ancient world, would call, be called a suzerain uh, covenant or, or treaty, where basically uh, they would cut some animals in half. This is a gory chapter. It's a weird chapter, and that's kind of why I, why I wanted to preach out of it. Uh, they basically, they would cut these animals in half, and then they would walk through it after they had made their promises, saying basically, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may I be like these animals? May I be torn in half? And so Abram is kind of starting to pick up on things, and so he, he does what God says. He, he gets the animals, he sacrifices them, and then as he's waiting for God to ratify this covenant, there are birds flying down, and, and carrion birds are trying to take away uh, this covenant. And so there's, there's, there's loads of symbolism here, loads of, time, loads of things that we don't necessarily have time to get into today. But if we think about it, Abram was fighting for this promise. He knew who was ratifying it. He knew who promised it, and he was faithful to fulfill it. And so he fought for it. So he, he, he said, okay, God, I'm, this is what you want me to do. I'm going to make sure that this, this, this goes off. I'm going to fight for it. And in the same way, Israel would fight many of, of battles for their own uh, covenant land later on. They would, they, would have, they would be accosted by enemies from outside. This inheritance was worth fighting for. It was worth pursuing. It was worth fighting for. And as Christians, we can think of that as we know everything has been put under the feet of Jesus, that Jesus rules and reigns from heaven now. And so we have that. It's not that we have done anything. Jesus is already victorious. And so we, are, we know how this ends. And in that confidence, we can live out our lives in a much a brighter is the best way I can put it. We can live our lives with that hope, knowing that everything has been put at the feet of Jesus. And in the same way, we fight for, for that covenant, even though we're not the ones doing it. So for my, my third point, um, this is, uh, it's immortal, eternal. And uh, I, my, one of my favorite parts of this whole thing is when, when the, the, the uh, treaty, the Susan Treaty, is about to go down. In verse 12, God's just like, okay, Abram, you're not part of this. Go to sleep. Get out of here. I am going to take care of this. Just, and let me put this in a way you're going to understand. Because the entire time that God has been talking to Abram, he has been telling him, this is what's going to happen. I'm calling you out of a land for a purpose. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. Your descendants are going to be many. And Abram is still... He's, he's believing it at this point, but there still is just a little something missing. And finally, in one of the ways that, that God lifts, lifts to us, the ways he puts it in ways that we can understand, 
he says, here's the documentation. I am, uh, let's, let's make this official. Let's, let's do this. So God begins the preamble in, in the suzerain theory, the treaty, excuse me. It would start by listing the parties involved before issuing the blessings and curse, curses of the treaty. So God dictates the blessings due Abram and his descendants in verse 13. And he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. He's letting them know, this is going to mirror your experiences, Abram. Your people who you will have, by the way, they are going to suffer, and I am going to be glorified in that. I'm going to bring them out, and there will be greater glory for it. And this is the part where where God is saying all these blessings, and he's basically telling, uh, in verse 14, or sorry, uh, verse 15, he says, as for you, you shall go to your father's in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Abram, your job is to live in peace and die. That's it. That's it. I'm going to take care of everything else. And so after God has walked through all this with Abram, he has told him the, uh, the, the terms of the covenant, of the treaty, and he walks through the, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. And this, God, this is God saying, if this doesn't come to pass, may I be torn apart. May I be torn asunder. May I be no more. The immortal, eternal God has told Abram this. The God who cannot die, the God who cannot break, walks through these pieces. This is a, like, it's, and again, this is a weird chapter, I know. But when you really dig into the nitty-gritty of this, we can pull out so much good theology. Because this, number one, this points to the near future, the, the smoking fire pot and the, the flaming torch. The Israelites were led by a smoking pillar by day and a flame by night. God, this is basically God saying, this is the way I'm going to deliver your people. But also, this is where it points to Jesus, because God is taking this on himself. Who can bear the weight of eternal judgment if, this, if we don't keep our end? Who can swear by himself and not be torn asunder? Who can take sin from us and impart righteousness in its place? Who is just to forgive by fulfilling the entire law? None but Jesus none but our God. This is what this points to, this weird, awkward chapter with Abram just not getting it and God trying to push this into his brain. This is going to happen. I am going to do it. By my, I swear by my immortal self, the, the greatest standard of truth in the universe, I swear by me. If this is not done, may I, the immortal God, break. It is the the greatest surety that Abram could have. It's not just God's word anymore. This is a document. This is God signing the papers. This is saying, here's your proof. I'm going to do this. 
And so from there, we're, we'll, we'll move into the, the applications of this. And number one is we bring nothing to this covenant, and that is ultimately freeing. This is ultimately so – it takes all of the weight off of us. God has already said, hey, I've got this taken care of. Live in this peace. Live in this word that I have given you. And uh, this, is also, this is also the application where I quote a bunch of people um, who are much smarter than me. Because C.S. Lewis once said, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. And there is still a sense in us, even as Christians, even as Christians who have been Christians for so long, there's still an element of, I've got to earn this. There's still an element of, I need to work harder. I need to do better. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is not do better or die. The gospel is living out the love that we've been giving, given from the God who first loved us. It says in Ephesians 1.5 that in love he predestined us to this. He is taking, he has taken the, the, the curse upon us that should be upon us and placed it on himself. And as we believe like Abram did, that is counted to us as righteousness. This isn't our own. This isn't anything. This is already done. All we have to do is live in it. We literally just have to walk in the victory parade to eternity. That's it. That's all we've got. We don't have to earn this. And Jonathan Edwards, because he's just had a succinct way of putting things when he wasn't writing like 500-page treatises. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's it. That's all we've done. That, that's the only reason we're involved here is because we sinned. We're, that's the only reason we're here. And God loved us enough to say, I'm pulling you out of that. I think there, there's, a, there's a concept of uh, the Reformed doctrine of election that is more like God going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, it says, in love, he predestined you. If you have a love for God, it's because he loved you first. He brought you into this. He loved you. And in this, when Abram brought nothing to the table either, he just, God said, okay, look, set this up, and then I'm going to do everything else, okay? And in the same way, we have been given the sacrifice of Jesus. We have been given a, a, a eternal gift that this is not our home, that our sin is not the final say in our lives. God brings us with the driving force of his love, and we can trust him to, as, as it says in Jude 23, present us blameless. It doesn't say that we present ourselves blameless. Now, that doesn't mean we don't strive, and I'll get into that in a second. We are not the ones presenting ourselves blameless to the Father. It's the Son who has done all this for us. We need to rest in that. Number two, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. I've been a little rough on Abram, I know. But in hindsight, it seems a little bit silly that the God who is bringing you into all these visions, the God who has done so much for you, the God that called you out of a far country into a new country, and you're still quibbling on the details like, where are my kids going to come from, God? Questions, 
don't make you a bad Christian. Your struggles, your doubts, they do not invalidate who you are as a child of God. I mean, as an example, there are plenty of things that Abram probably wanted to trust God for. Or he would have had an easier time with. Like in the chapter in before when he's rescuing Lot, he probably had no problem knowing God was on his side. But then when you get into the territory of where's my son going to come from, all of a sudden he doesn't want any part of that. And the best way I could describe it, my kids have this, and I know I'm, I'm preaching and bringing my kids into an illustration, and that is just the lamest thing. Um, but my kids have this habit of just jumping on my back randomly. Just I'll be just in the middle of something, or I'll like tie my shoe, and all of a sudden I have two or three kids just... <laughs> they trust me there. They trust that I'm going to hold them up. They trust that I can do that. But when that's, that, 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 that same trust doesn't necessarily apply when I say, okay, kids, you have to go to the dentist or your teeth will fall out of your head. That, it's the same kind of faith. It's just there are some things that are harder for us to grasp. That doesn't make them any less my kids. God can handle those questions. God can handle those doubts. And in the same way, we can bring those to him. This is what the word is about. This is, this is what the word does for us. When we read the word and we work through these questions and we, we talk to good counsel, we work through this. That brings about even greater growth in our faith. I know for, for me, number one, I had, I had a praying wife. And then when I started to face my questions head on, I had no greater growth in my spiritual life than when I faced those questions head on, knowing that if God is who he says he is, he can handle those. He can carry those. So I, I, I beg you, if you have questions, that's okay. If you have doubts, that's okay. If you are angry, it's okay. God can handle that. You can bring that to him. Don't let those things force you into a state of, of just bitterness and not caring. Take them to heaven. Take them to the throne. Thomas Watson once said that Christ went to the cross more willingly than we go to the throne of grace. And that kind of leads into my, my third application. Faith is trust put into action. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's the faith. And then he immediately goes to another land. He, is, he acts out on this faith. He is, he's, okay, you know what you're doing, God. I'm going to follow you. And then knowing what God was going to do, what God was trying to do. He drives the birds off that are trying to desecrate this covenant that is promised to him. He, he fights. He fights for it. It's done. We need to live in that. We need to, we need to if we say as Christians, I believe in a God who can take care of my finances, we need to be okay with being generous. Generous. If we believe that 
God does all things for his glory and our good, we can take hard times as they come. We can bear that because we know that our faith, the object of our faith, is greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we have trust in that. Point number four, there is a striving inherent in living out our faith. And again, coming back to the the driving off of the carrion birds, Abram still needed help. That The reason God was doing this was because Abram was still not getting it. So he was giving him something a little more on his level. The promise was difficult for Abram to see. And he, he strove to understand that. He strove to protect that. And until we grasp the promises of God with all the strength found in prayer and in the Holy Spirit, we're, we're not going to be able to strive. We can't do this on our own. Again, the gospel is not do better. The gospel is this is done you are my child, come to me. All you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We rest in that because I can promise you, I can promise you, every single time you try to do the Christian faith outside of God, every time you try super hard to be a Christian, you are going to fall flat on your face. You are going to be exhausted because that is not the gospel. The gospel is not, I better behave myself because God did this really nice thing for me. It's, I trust you, God. I love you, God. And, and love changes you. When I met my wife, I changed. Not because of anything particularly in me. I mean, yeah, I wanted her to like me. But love changes you. Love changes your priorities. It changes your sight lines. And when we have a love for God... We can strive. We can fight for that. In 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 23-27, Paul talks about this. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He doesn't say power walk. He doesn't say meander. He says run. Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There is a consistency and a a fight that this love brings out in us, that we hate sin, that we want to please God. There, it, it is not gumdrops and roses the entire time in our Christian faith. The mystery of the Christian life is not if or how the Holy Spirit works in us. It's pretty plainly shown in uh, the redemption of our hearts, in the love that we have for Christ. The mystery of the Christian life is why we don't seek his strength in our strivings. So many times I 
have a tendency to live as if prayer is just me saying a mantra, as if it's just me sticking words on the wall and throwing them at the ceiling and hoping they stick and bringing out a positive. No, I'm talking to the immortal, eternal God who loved me and gave himself for me and who wants to help me, who has given us the Holy Spirit inside of us, God with us. The Holy Spirit working in us. And we still have a tendency to think that we have a part in all of this. And so letting go of this need to... Letting, just letting go of this need to earn this somehow and not resting in those promises. And it's a difficult thing. It's a weird thing to balance, right? Because on one hand, you do have the Christian life. The Christian life is difficult. It is hard. And so there is an element, a little bit, of do better. But it's where we find our focus. If our focus is just on us doing better, if our focus is just on us needing to be better, to look better, to play the part better, that is where we're going to fall apart. That is where we're going to get exhausted. This is where where good Christian men and women stumble and fall because we forget where our strength lies. And finally, for the last application, if we trust God to do as he says, we can live joyfully in a world without immediate justice. If we trust God to do as he says, we can live joyfully in a world without immediate justice. Abram wanted this fulfillment of the promise. He wanted it more than anything. That's why he kept mentioning, God, you you mentioned, you said you were going to give me a son. I still don't see a son here. He wanted that. He didn't immediately see it, but he believed God that it would be done. And then God immediately says, okay, but look, wrong's going to be done to your people. You are going to have these people. There's going to be wrong done to them, and then it will be righted. I mean, even in seeing that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete, there's still going to be wrong in this world, Abram. Just because I give you this promise doesn't mean everything is going to be hunky-dory. And as Christians, it's and especially in a world that just aggrandizes the smallest thing to make us fight, to make us fear, to make us worry, to make us see every single thing 24-7, what is wrong with this world? We see all of these things all the time. And it is really hard sometimes to be like, is this really under control, God? Is this really in your hand? Do you really have all things in this? There is so much going on right now, and it doesn't seem like you're doing much. But if we trust in God's promises, if we believe in this God who walked through those pieces saying, if this is not done may I be torn in half, the immortal, un- the immortal unbreakable God, then we can live with joy even when we don't see the, 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 the great good that's happening. Or when we, sometimes we lose track of eternity and we lose track of our great hope in the coming of Christ. That doesn't mean that we paste grins on our faces and act like nothing's going wrong. Joy isn't an, an inappropriate, blinding happiness. It's being content in the promises of God, trusting him for our identity rather than our situation, our pride, or our piety. 
Rather than looking at the political situation in our country and saying, ah, everything's out of control, it, rather than seeing ourselves as smaller than other people and, and letting that control our emotions or trying to put the best foot forward and, and try to be the shiniest, brightest Christian. When we put our identity in those things rather than the cross, rather than in who God has said we are through him, then we are just, again, we're going to fall apart. And there's a theme here. There is a theme where we don't have a part in this. We need to live like it. Take the weight of eternity and the world off your shoulders. It's done. If you have given your life to Christ, and if you haven't, please, today is the day. I am not going to get into doom and gloom. I'm not going to say, well, you're going to like fall on the steps out there and break your head open, and then you could immediately go to hell. I don't, but today, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says it. Turn to him. Turn to Christ for your salvation. Give him your sin, and in turn, he will give you a new life. He will give you eternal life. And Christians, we need to live in that. The songwriter Andrew Schwab once said, or once wrote, Who do I belong to? Not earth, not world, not evil, not mortals, not wretches, not horrors. Who do I belong to? Unchanging, unbreaking, unfailing, creator, immortal, eternal. Christians, I beg you live. Live in light of the immortal God who has done these things for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is living, that it is powerful, and that it cuts directly to our hearts. I pray that we would live in light of your word, that we would see it and we would grasp your promises. I pray that this word would find good soil in us and that we would bear fruit and that we would live in a world with joy, with a joy that this world literally cannot understand and that they would see us as an example, that we would point them to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.